Good morning, church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Lord, your word has come to us from you. And it's a tremendous gift to have the words of the living God that are sharper than any two-edged sword that pierce to the deepest places in our hearts. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning thankful for this good gift to receive your word. And as Elder Jake reminded us last week, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so, Lord, uh, take your word, plant it deep within us, cause it to bear fruit. We humble ourselves before you as we receive, trusting you to transform and trusting you to show and bear witness by your spirit to the power and the beauty of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This text that we're looking at this morning is all about wisdom and God's desire for us to have it. All right, so that's the big picture of the text up front in one sentence is this text is about wisdom and God's desire for us to have it. He, from top to bottom in this text, he is going to talk about wisdom. We're going to see God um, commands us to ask for wisdom. He motivates us to ask for wisdom. And on top of that, he positions us to receive wisdom. I'll come back to that again in a moment. But let's talk about wisdom because this is what this text is all about. Wisdom, you could say, is the ability to think and act in light of God's word in the midst of God's world. That's what wisdom is, this ability to think and act in light of God's word in the midst of God's world, which is no small thing because we live in a fallen world, a very broken world, and it takes a certain moral skill to be able to navigate life here in a way that honors God. But that's what wisdom is all about. And that's what God wants us to have. He wants us to have wisdom. And this wisdom is something that we often lack. And that's the assumption of our passage today. And that's why it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And you may know from reading the book of James before that, that there's a repetition there with the word lack and it ties it together with the passage before it. So if you go back to verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, here's the word, lacking in nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So God wants us to be perfect. He wants us to be complete, lacking in nothing. And we need wisdom for, we need help in all kinds of areas of our lives. But some of the circumstances that, that um, a call for the most need for wisdom in our lives is when we are struggling with affliction, when we are undergoing suffering and trials of various kinds. And so that's the immediate context here is that, He's assuming that there's going to be trials of various kinds. And uh, that's the thing about trials, isn't it? They sneak up on you. And you think you kind of got some of them figured out, a new one comes and scares you, 
right? But that's what we need wisdom for. And we often do lack wisdom when it comes to new circumstances that we're facing. And that's the beauty of this passage before us, is that it's about wisdom and God's desire for us, for you to have it. And, um, and especially in the midst of trials and sufferings. And I really appreciate uh, Matthew Henry's comment. He's an uh, old commentator that's well known. Um, and he, he said this, he said, quote, We should not pray so much for the removal of affliction as for wisdom to make a right use of it. So not so much pray for the removal of affliction as for wisdom to make the right use of it. You find yourself undergoing affliction in some trial of one kind or another right now. This text is going to be a help to you that you're not just praying to get rid of the affliction, but you're praying for wisdom to make right use of it. So this is where we're going to go. We're going to see that God commands us to ask for wisdom. God motivates us to ask for wisdom. And God positions us to get it, to receive wisdom. So look with me at verse 5, first part of verse 5. This is the main point of the passage. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. The first part of verse five just highlights the source of wisdom. It's God himself. In the book of Job, Job 28 verse 12, Job asked the question, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Job came to find out the answer to his own question. God is the source of that wisdom. The book of Proverbs draws it out well too. Proverbs 2 verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And again, to remind us of Jake's sermon from last week, to not just be hearers of God's word, but doers. This is about as basic as a statement as I can make, you know, this is what the, the text is about. This is what it's calling for. This is the main point today is that, that God is calling us, we who lack wisdom, to ask him for it. To ask him for it. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. But like Jake's you know, text from last week, it's just like, hey, let's go to the house of the Lord. Let's hear what the Lord has to say. And then the prophets <laughs> groan and reply, but they're not going to do what it says. May it not be said of us that they're not going to do what it says. We want to be those who are here this morning to say, what does the Lord want for us? I'm telling you, he wants us to have wisdom. And that's why he's telling us and commanding us here to go right to the source, to ask him for wisdom. So what do you need wisdom for right now in your life? What circumstances are you facing and you're just finding yourself kind of reeling, trying to respond to them? What do you need wisdom for? This text is saying, ask. You have not because you ask not, right? We want to ask God for wisdom. And this is where we get into trouble, right? This is where we get into the most trouble is when trials come or circumstances we're not quite used to or ready for or expecting and we lean into self-reliance instead of leaning into the Lord. We start you know, in our circumstances, as it were, running around with like chickens with our heads cut off. But God is wanting us to run right to him and to ask him, to ask God 
for wisdom. Now, the one, one thing I want to say in just qualifying this before we leave this point is to say that um, when we say ask God for wisdom, I also want to highlight from Scripture that, that God ordains ways of channeling his wisdom to making sure that his wisdom gets to us where we need it, when we need it, on the front lines of our lives and the nitty-gritty of our lives. And so what are, I'm going to give you a chance to participate with me a little bit. What are some of the ways so we can say, ask God for wisdom, but if he's going to answer that, what are some of the ways that he would channel wisdom to us? Okay, older men in the church, amen. Our wives. Our wives. <laughs> Kevin, can I get an amen? <laughs> amen, yeah, thank you, brother. Yeah, amen. Yeah, our, our spouses, great source of wisdom. What else? Elders. Parents, the word of God. Elders, Elders in the church. Yes, the scripture says, you know, in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. So finding wise counsel in the context that God has placed us in the local church is such a gift from us and in the family, such a gift to us to seek out these sources. So we shouldn't be surprised uh, that God channels wisdom. We can say, um, we can ask God for wisdom and then just be waiting there, you know, waiting, waiting, when you, instead of recognizing that he's wanting to channel it through these specific means, Older men and older women in the church that are sources of wisdom. Parents that are sources of wisdom. A spouse that's a source of wisdom. But most of all, his word is gonna be a source of wisdom that shapes us, right? And one of the reasons why we need these multiple forms of wisdom is that God's word is clear and it's applicable to every situation, but does it address every specific situation of our life in detail? No, but the principles of God's word if wisely understood, wisely understood can be applied to any number of situations in our lives. But we want to go to God, as it were, so it lifts up that gate and then he starts channeling his wisdom to us um, for our lives. And so, gentle reminder from this first part of the verse, go to the source. Go to God for wisdom. Actually ask him for wisdom, Remembering this, that uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, okay? From the Father of lights, and he doesn't change. So let us ask God for wisdom. God commands us to ask him for wisdom, but God also motivates us to ask for wisdom. So look with me at the second part of verse five. So it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. A helpful question to ask as we're looking at this passage together this morning is, why does God inspire James to include the second part of verse five? I mean, if you know the passage well, he could just say, you know, if you wanted to be really concise, you could just say, uh, um, lack wisdom, ask God, and ask in faith. Right? Right? If you lack wisdom, ask God, go right to the source, and ask in faith. But instead, there's this, these words in the second part of verse 5. So why does he include those words, who gives generously to all without reproach? It will be given him. Why? Well, it's because he's wanting to motivate us. He's wanting to motivate us to ask. We need some content for our faith. You don't just jump to it. He gives us content for our faith by describing to us God's character, God's attitude, and then emboldening us with a promise right from the mouth of God. 
So he's motivating us in this section by the second part of verse five. He wants us to be motivated. He wants us to have a hook to hang our hearts on, to be able to trust in, to put our faith in. So we want some content, um, some substance to our faith. And so he reminds us by reminding us of God's character and attitude toward us. Look there, when it says, when I, where I get this is God's character, I'm talking about this word when it says, uh, who gives generously to all. God gives wisdom generously because he's generous, because of who he is. That's why it says here that God gives generously to all without reproach. He gives generously, freely, liberally. In other words, God has this single-minded, that's the sense of it, he has this single-minded intent God doesn't have two minds. We're going to find out later on in the passage that that's our problem. We often are double-minded, right? But God is single-minded in his intent to give generously to his people. And uh, this is why God talks elsewhere uh, to help us understand what he's like, especially in the context of prayer. Um, One of the most helpful passages in the New Testament that I found to help uh, to help stimulate my prayer life and help shape my convictions about prayer is Matthew 7, 7 through 11. You know that passage where Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you, right? And then he uses a couple examples to press the point further. So he's telling us to ask, but then he starts motivating us to do it. How does he motivate us to do it? He says, what father, if, he's, uh, if his son asks him for bread, gives him a stone or if he asks for fish gives him a serpent a stake yeah something that's dangerous so in other words he's playing on the fact that even earthly fathers with all of their imperfections right that they are generally speaking inclined to give good gifts to their children something that's nourishing something that's valuable not something that's going to be dangerous or destructive right and if earthly fathers are that naturally inclined to give good gifts to their children how much more is your heavenly father inclined to give you good things? That's how Jesus argues to help us be motivated to ask. This is what God's heart is like. So it helps to come to prayer and be able to be like, God, I know that you delight to give good gifts. And you've told me to ask for things like this and that you're actually inclined to give them uh, to me. And so that's what he's doing right here and talking about God's generosity. He gives generously. This is what God is like. And this is important. This is very important because as Pastor Ross from FBC St. Cloud reminded us a couple weeks ago, this is one of the fundamental temptations of Satan is that he tries to get us to doubt the generosity of God. You could argue that that was the first temptation in the Bible on this very point. And he's been doing it ever since. Somehow, that ancient crafty serpent was able to slither in there in a moment and in a few moments convince our first parents that God was the stingiest person in the universe, right? That he's stingy. But the reality was on the ground was that they lived, they swam in an ocean of yeses and there was one island, no, right? But Satan deceived them about the character of God and was able to convince them that they actually live in a world of no's and there's just one yes. You know, he flipped the whole thing and so there's such a temptation to believe false things about God that he's not generous. And this text is fighting against that. It's pushing against that and, and in fact, you could say that the Bible 
is designed to push against that. And even great promises like Romans 8, 32. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Does that sound like a stingy God? No, our God is generous. Whoever lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. And then it says, without reproach. So it's not just that God's character and his generosity that's highlighted here, but also his attitude. His attitude. God gives wisdom without any desire to reproach us for asking. This is actually really beautiful to let this settle into the heart. He's telling us to ask, and he's saying, when you ask, you will not be mocked or scolded or shamed or demeaned in any way for asking. Your lack, right, doesn't put you on God's bad side. Your recognition of your act, your lack and your willingness to go to God, you're going to meet a God whose attitude toward you is not to mock, scold, shame, demean, but invite. Okay, that's the instinct here. And so the reason why that little phrase here, one of the sweetest ones in this passage, without reproach, is even in there, is because God wants us to go to him for wisdom and for everything that we need. He wants, he wants us to go to him in such a way that his people do not hesitate to come to him, that we are not reluctant to come to him. And so he's trying to work on our hearts here to help us see what he is like, what his attitude is toward us so that we wouldn't hesitate, that we'd come joyfully, that we'd come boldly uh, to his presence. He's not like the reluctant householder that we read about in the parable. Remember that in Luke 11, five and six, you know, the story goes where uh, someone has uh, visitors late at night and they don't have enough to show hospitality. And so he goes to his neighbor's house, banging on the door. And in those days, they're all like living in one room. So it's waking everybody up. And uh, he's knocking on the door and be like, I got guests that are coming. They're coming late. Can you, can you give me some bread? Can you give me some supplies? He's just like, oh, please just make him go away. He wants him to go away. And, but he keeps knocking and he keeps knocking. And so his pers- the point is like his persistence, you know, prevails upon the, house, the householder there. And eventually he's like, fine, take it. Just leave so we can get back to sleep. Okay. God's not like that. He's not hesitant. He wants you to knock on his door and he's already got the provisions ready. He wants you to knock. He wants you to come confidently that, they're, that the, he's going to supply. God loves when we come and he's honored when we ask. He's honored by it. He's pleased by it. And so in this section where God motivates us to ask for wisdom, he describes his character as generous, his attitude Hey, he's not going to shame us for it. He's welcoming us to come. He doesn't want us to have any hesitations. And then he puts the cherry on top in the section with a promise, right? He gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. It will be given him. This is a promise. God will supply the wisdom. And I think sometimes it's helpful, you know, to give a personal testimony of this. Now, the Bible's a thick book, and there are many, many, many promises in it. And God wants us to learn to take all of them to the bank, to trust him for all of them. So I am not going to stand up here and claim 
that every single promise in the Bible in my own life experientially is tried and proved, okay? But I will tell you this one. This one is. Like, I can't testify to my faithful handling of every single promise in Scripture, but I can say that this promise, I have tried it, and God has proved the faithfulness of this in my life. I cannot count how many times I have prayed this text, especially when I'm perplexed, and I'm not quite sure what to do in a situation. And I pray, you know, your word says, if anyone lacks God, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And your word says that you give generously and without reproach, that you're not shaming me for asking right now. And you wrote this so that I would be inclined to come to you. And so then I come and I ask him for wisdom for something and I wait expectantly for him to do it. And then I go on doing the things I think he's calling me to do and I watch him show up. And and it's such a joy to watch him deliver on a promise like this. I can't even tell you how many times this has happened. And so I just want to, you know, sometimes just use my own experience as your pastor to be able to kind of leverage one more thing to be able to say, ask him, ask him. He's motivating you. And so just let me say, this, this is a tried and proved promise. Come to him. And if you're not in the habit of it right now, let this become a tried and proved promise in your life. God wants that for you. Too many promises in the Bible are left untapped. Beloved, let this not be one of them. Let's go to God and ask, and let's ask confidently uh, with a sense of expectation because this promise here, and it will be given him, is meant to embolden us to come. So let these motivations push and pull on you, pull you to ask because that's what they're designed to do. Now, this scripture doesn't just tell us uh, to ask, And it doesn't just tell us why to ask, it also tells us how to ask. By walking us through the how uh, in verses um, 6 through 8, the last section of our passage. Now, have any of you had to fill out paperwork before for something that just feels really complicated? (laughs) You know, it's just like anything to do with the government, you know? (laughs) If you have to fill out paperwork, you know, it's just, and sometimes it just, it's so, what's really frustrating about it is they give you all of this paperwork. Often it feels like it was written by a lawyer. You know, you're not trained as one. And so you're just reading it and they're just smiling at you like, go ahead, fill it out. And you're just like, am I going to end up in jail if I mess something up on here? You know, your heart, heart starts beating fast and, and, and it just feels stressful, right? And, um, and so I, I think about, I was thinking about that and I'm like, you know, if we've ever had an experience where we're having to fill out paperwork and someone, that person, instead of just smiling, like, have fun, they said, come on the other side of the table with you, sit down and start walking you through it piece by piece, telling you what this means, what you need to do. And, and it's like, they want that to happen. So imagine if you had this stack of paperwork and that you were filling it out for a grant. Okay, there's gonna be a lot of money coming your way if you can fill this thing out right? And to fill it out right. And the person that gives you the stack of paperwork also comes to the other side of the table and is like, all right, let's do this. I'm going to tell you, I'm not just telling you you need to fill out this paperwork if you're going to get the grant. I'm not just telling you that there's a lot of money involved to motivate you. I'm telling you, I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to show you how to do it. 
what are you thinking about that person at that point? If they just took you line by line and you filled it out and you're like, wow. What are you thinking about that person? Give him a big hug, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking, this person really wants me to have that grant, right? In the same way in this text, we're meant to go, this God, my God really wants me to have the wisdom that I lack right now. He really wants me to have it. He's the one that comes on the other side of the table. He's going to tell us in this section that there are some conditions, right? But he's going out his way to help us meet those conditions so that we can receive the wisdom that we lack and that we desperately need. So let me read the end of the passage here, this last section, and then we're going to unpack it together. So it says, so how should we ask? But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, God commands us to ask for wisdom. God motivates us to ask for wisdom. But now we can say, God positions us to receive wisdom. And we get a positive and a negative statement here in terms of how we are to ask for wisdom so that we can receive it. Positively, we are to ask in faith. Negatively, we are to ask without doubt, without doubting, right? So we want to ask with an attitude of faith, not doubt. So we are to ask in faith, that is, with full conviction, with certainty, with confidence that what God promised, he's going to deliver on. He says, if you ask him in faith, it will be given to you. And so he expects us to ask with that kind of certainty, a kind of expectation that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. He will deliver on his word. And this confidence has substance, right? Our faith has something, you know, we have something to hang our hearts on here because, right, the second part of verse five is in the passage for a reason. So we're having confidence in the generosity of his character, right? We're having confidence in uh, the the sweetness, the tenderness, the, the hospitality of his, his attitude toward us that welcomes us to ask without shaming us. We have confidence in his promise and ultimately here, we have confidence in his heart, what he's like. And so we're called to ask in faith. And I think what we're meant to feel here is the appropriateness of trusting such a generous and ready God. It's absolutely appropriate that we should. Such a God should be trusted. God is worthy of our trust. This is what I have to preach to myself oftentimes. When I start finding my heart wanting to go into one of these fainting fits of unbelief, right, and doubt, like I have to be like, he's worthy of my trust. I have to speak to myself. Brandon, what has he ever done to jeopardize your, your faith in him? to undermine your faith in him. It'd be good to ask all of ourselves that question, right? Really, what has he done? When we think on a superficial level because of hard things that happen in our lives, it's really easy to have superficial, hardened thoughts toward God, right? But when we press into it, we realize he's never wronged me. Never once has he not kept his word. Never once has he acted out of character. 
This is a powerful thing to speak to our hearts because sometimes we think we ourselves would run the universe better than he does, right, in our situations. But he's always done what is right and what is wise, and he does just a fine job governing the universe, especially when you think about where he's leading this entire thing. So we're meant to have the, have the sense of the appropriateness of trusting God. Like, of course, why wouldn't we trust him? Why wouldn't we trust him? God has never done anything to warrant our mistrust or skepticism. Never. In our entire lives, not for a day, not for a minute, has never done anything to warrant our mistrust or skepticism. Test that today. He hasn't. He never has. And God is dishonored by doubt. Distrust belittles his glory. That's why it's so appropriate for this this condition to be in this text. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Because doubt belittles the glory of God. God does not deserve to be distrusted. He deserves to be trusted. And, you know, to make this, bring this home a little bit more, if you're walking in integrity, okay, and you're a person that really means what you say and say what you mean, and you're a pretty consistent person, you operate with a high level of integrity in your life, you know what it's like to have situations where someone just doesn't trust you. Someone will not take you at your word. How do you feel when that happens? Come on, say it. Terrible. It's provocative, right? It hurts, right? These things bother us because we're like, look, I know I'm trustworthy in this situation, you know? but they're not giving you that, okay? If we feel that sense, you know, in our own lives with our inconsistencies that we do have, but we can have a general integrity of life and rightly expect people to generally trust us, if we can feel off-put by people not trusting us, how do you think God would feel when he's never given us a reason to mistrust him? And so, hence the condition of this text. God deserves to be honored. God deserves to be held in high regard and his trustworthiness to be something that's unquestioned in our minds. And so this condition here is, in a sense, meant to test our hearts in this way. Who would have thought just trying to walk through obediently a passage like this would have such a purifying process in us? It's causing us to check our hearts. That's what this text will do for us. This is a fitting condition that God gives. Um, believing God's fatherly character and intent is crucial for effective prayer. This is just like, a, just like a standalone thought. In terms of effective prayer, this is at the heart of effective prayer. And you could say negatively, defective prayer often comes down to not believing God's fatherly character and imputing poor things on his intent. And it just weakens us and it makes our prayers ineffective because God means to be trusted. Trusting his character and intent is, a, is, is gold for having effective prayer lives. And so we are to pray in faith with no doubting, without a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of settled conviction in our lives because the person who doubts is compared to 
the waves of the sea. You notice that in the text there? The text compares the Christian's doubting heart with waves. Waves driven and tossed by the wind. Just as the wind has its way with the waves, doubts have their way with the believer's heart. And so you just imagine waves being, you stop and think, we usually think about like a ship being tossed on the waves, and so that's a fitting analogy too, but just the waves themselves just being pushed to and fro by the wind. And this text is pushing against that happening to the believer's heart. So there's a desperate need, you know, if we talk, use, like put a ship on the water in the illustration, you know, what's, what's deeply needed is ballast in the boat. Some weight in the boat, some heavy material to be placed at the bottom of the vessel that's going to help it to ride a little lower and be able to not be tossed to and fro and be driven by the winds. You could say the winds, the winds of doubt. Without the ballast of faith, a heart is made dangerously light with doubt. And we're at the risk of being violently storm-tossed on the waves of instability and uncertainty. And this is, we know this from experience. This is what happens, right? We become really unstable and uncertain, but it's help for us to, helpful for us to know where's that instability coming from? Where's that, that uncertainty coming from? It's coming from my, my inability to, or my lack of trust in God right now. And it's letting doubt rule uh, my mind and my heart. So God puts this condition on the request for wisdom. He's calling for an attitude of faith not doubt. And so like I said earlier, this is a purifying process with this condition because we're going, okay, ask, right? God is like this, so ask him, all right? He wants to give it to you. And we're like, all right, no conditions. No, but ask in faith with no doubting. God puts this condition on our hearts and it, and it does give us this heart check. What will you do? It forces us to ask, what will I do with my doubt? That's what last, this last section in this passage makes us ask. What will I do? What will you do with my doubt? We have two options. One, we're going to confront it or we're going to be controlled by it. This is how it goes. We're going to either be confronted, we're going to confront our doubt, like Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to confront it. We're not going to seek to coddle our doubt, but kill it, right? So we can either confront it or we can be controlled, be controlled by it. And obviously this text is written so that we wouldn't be controlled by our doubt. This condition here is a meant of just kind of be a purifying process so that we would go to God as God deserves to be approached with trusting hearts. God wants us to trust him. So to trust God and enjoy the purity and stability that comes with wisdom. Or we can doubt God and remain unstable and insecure, tossed about. So we can get some weight in the boat, act in faith, or we can keep getting seasick. And that's miserable. Someone was telling me, I won't give any names, but someone was telling me about experience in their family lately where they had to take a, I don't know if it's like a ferry or whatever, and the, and the, and the, the body of water that they were traveling across, they're like, well, it's, it's really choppy out there today and it's kind of like, do they cancel, do they not? And they, they didn't cancel it and, and so people bought tickets for this you know, if, efficient way of transportation and they went and it was just violent and everybody was throwing up. Everybody on the entire thing. 
you imagine what it felt like? And so it's like, you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way, you know? Uh, you can act in faith and come to God in faith with this or you can doubt him. But that's the thing. Seasickness is miserable, right? It's miserable. And this text is designed to say, you don't have to live with the seasickness. You don't have to live with it. But if you choose to belittle God by letting your doubt go unchecked, you do need to hear this, this kind of... Uh, stiff condition in this text that you should not expect to receive it. That's clear in this text. Shouldn't presume that you should get it if you're not even willing to trust God, you know? And it is a strange thing when you slow down. Like, we often just think that regardless of the state of our hearts, we should get whatever we want when we come in prayer. But it's like, when we stop and think about it from God's perspective, how belittling that is, how dishonoring that is to God to come to him and not even believe that he'll give it. And this text is meant to just kind of cut us to the quick on this and go, he's worthy of your trust. He's worthy. So if you're wondering why many of your prayers are not being answered, this text might help a lot. James 4 would help a lot as well. When it says, you know, we have not because we ask not, then we ask and do not receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our own passions and pleasures, right? When our hearts are not right. It's not always safe to give children whatever they want, when their hearts aren't right, is it? Parents, help me out here. Okay? I'm not going crazy here. Like, well, God knows what he's doing with his children, right? And he expects us, and he's more trustworthy than any, any parent in the room and all of us together, right? Um, so, so, we, so God expects for us to be trusted, for him to be trusted. And so, the, and it points out here, it, it points out here the root issue in the last part of the verse. Okay, after it says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the root issue here is a heart issue. It's an instability of our hearts. There's a double-mindedness. That's why I said earlier, God's not like that. He has a single-mindedness, right? And his intent, we can have a double-minded intent, right? That's why Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You know, you can't love the world and love Jesus at the same time, right? Um, so there's a double-mindedness that has to be addressed. And, and that's what's being addressed here, but it points out the main heart that this really is a divided love, a divided loyalty in our hearts that is not fitting. And that's at the root of ineffective prayer, is a divided heart, a fractured heart, a wayward heart that's bent on its own passions. We often want a lot of things that have nothing to do with becoming more like Jesus Christ. And this checks us. It checks us. You must not suppose that he'll receive anything. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so is there any hope for a seasick heart? Like, is there any hope for a heart that is given to unbelief at the moment? Is there hope for a storm-tossed heart, a wind-driven heart, a heart that's been driven on the waves of doubt for some time? And I hope you think, I hope you know the answer to that question. Yeah, there is hope. There is hope. And um, some are seasick because they have never really trusted in Christ, right? They've spent their whole lives being tossed by the waves, and 
the amazing thing is we can say, there's even hope for that heart. There's hope for a heart that's never trusted in Jesus. But if that's you today, like you need to know that your need for wisdom is much deeper than you think. It's way deeper than you think. So I don't want you, if you haven't truly believed in Jesus today, to listen to this passage and say, all I need is a little bit of wisdom right now in my life. No, you need a lot more than just wisdom. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. Jesus, the good news is, came for doubters. If you really think about it, like God came knowing the entire world doubted who he was. Everybody doubted him, which is just such a dishonor to, a, to God for who he is. But he looked down on a world of doubters and he sent his own son into this world. Like to look people in the face and say, like, you still doubting? Watching Jesus walk in water, how about now? Heal the paralytic now? Still doubting? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we could take it one step further. You know, people will doubt a lot of things even if their eyes see them. But then Jesus went to the cross as a perfect man and he died there in order to dissolve doubt. If anyone questioned, one, their need for a lot more than wisdom, their need for rescue from sin and death and the wrath of God, we look at the cross because Jesus endured the wrath of God because of our sin, right? But it also gave us hope, right? Because Jesus came for doubters. He came so that doubters could be forgiven and he came so that doubt could be dissolved, not just now in this life, but for eternity. And that's what he secured in part at the cross. There's so much good news for the doubter, even the seasick heart that's been that way for their whole lives. Jesus came for doubters. And there's a verse in Proverbs that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's why I said in part that we need, you need a lot more than just some wisdom today, right? You need the fear of the Lord because that's the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is something that God puts in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so if you want something to ask for today, I give you permission. Don't just start by asking for wisdom. Ask for God to give you a new heart. Ask him to put the fear of the Lord in you. And I will tell you this, when your heart is new, it's gonna have new inclinations and you're gonna want to walk in wisdom. And even though you'll struggle at times, you're gonna want to get wisdom from God. And that you will have actually power by that Holy Spirit that dwells in you to overcome unbelief. But don't short circuit it. You must have a new heart. So cry out to God to put the fear of the Lord in you. Recognize the deeper need that you have today and cry out to God for it. And remember this, he's generous. He loves to give new hearts to people who ask. So cry out to him. Trust his generosity today. My prayer is that God will help you do that. And that is a work of God. So I lean on him to do that work in your heart. My words can only go so far, but I hope that they are helpful. But this seasickness also comes, um, some are seasick because they are sometimes uh, throwing their faith overboard, right? So it's something we have, but in moments, 
we start jettisoning the thing that's really important, which is our faith, right, in God. And so for believers, this is, this is what we do often. We have these little lapses, right, of judgment. We need some weight in our boat so that we can, so that we can ride through the storms and so that we can, uh, yeah, be able to not be so tossed, so storm-tossed. But instead, in the moment, what, what we need most, we start throwing overboard. And, uh, and so is there hope for us. And some of you, even this week, have been throwing stuff, throwing faith overboard. And uh, I want to say, God has mercy on those who doubt. God has mercy on those who doubt. In fact, I think it says that in the book of Jude, have mercy on those who doubt. Like, God wouldn't tell us to have mercy on those who doubt if God himself didn't have mercy on those who doubt. He does. God knows that things pull on our hearts. He knows that there's a tug of war for our hearts. In fact, all of chapter four virtually is written with this in mind, right? Right. What, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Then he goes on to say, you adulterous people, because you got that divided heart. Part of your heart wants to go to God. Part of your heart wants to run to the world. And he's just saying, you can't have both. And this is really the, part of your hope as a Christian. If you've been kind of tossed about and you're seeing that you're being more controlled by doubt than by faith in a God who's worthy of our trust, part of your hope is this, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you. Like in other words, if there's a tug of war for your heart, God is not a neutral party just sitting back and being like, oh, how's this gonna go? He means to get in on one side and pull you to the one side. He wants you to pull you to his side. This is what God's doing in this text that we're studying today is that he's pulling us to one side. And so if you have been struggling with doubt, you need to know like he is jealous to have your whole heart. That's why that condition is in the text. Ask in faith with no doubting because he wants your whole heart. Just like it's right for a spouse in marriage to want your heart and not for your heart to be running elsewhere. It's right for God who's made, laid claim on us through the blood of his son to demand our whole hearts, allegiance and loyalty. And that's what he's doing. He's sees this war within us. He's yearning jealously. And the text says in James chapter four that he gives more grace. And this is powerful because the same word in our text that says double-minded shows up in chapter four as well. And in that chapter, he's talking, remember the double-minded, that's the root issue. That's the heart issue of unbelief that's being dealt with here. And there in that text, it's saying it can be dealt with through confession, like coming to the Lord and confessing your sin. That is a passage that teaches us how to repent, how to draw near to God, to cleanse ourselves by coming to him in faith, by confessing our sins to him. But we're told here stunningly that he gives more grace, that he has mercy on the doubter. This is amazing. This is amazing. So once we have recognized that doubt is controlling our hearts and we go to God, honest with him about what's controlling our hearts and we confess it to him and we start to resist the devil, right? And then drawing near to God in faith, right? Our hearts are renewed. There's a sense in which God is saying, okay, try again, right? Ask, right? But ask in faith with no doubting, try again. 
Have you ever done this, parents, with your kids? Do you say that? I feel like that's a knee-jerk reaction in my house. It's just like someone comes up demanding something and the spirit's completely wrong. I'm sorry, kids. I mean, once in a while you do it. Um, but, you know, don't blame Ty. Yes, okay, he's the main culprit right now, but okay, this is a whole family thing. But yeah, like, so that, that's a common refrain. It's just kind of like, you know, coming, yeah, Titus just demanding things lately. And you'd be like, buddy, try again. Mommy, please, can I have, you know. And it's just like, okay, there we go, right? Because now you're asking rightly, right? Now his heart's not fully there yet, but I trust the Lord's working on him, right? Um, so, but it's sweet. In a sense, God's coming to us. He's recognizing the kind of things that pull at our hearts, He's not leaving us to ourselves. He's saying, if there's unbelief there, he wants us to cry out, Lord, help my unbelief. He wants us to confess that to the Lord, to wage war against our unbelief and to freshly trust him. And this is God's gentle way of saying, okay, ask again. Ask again. Now that your heart's been checked, I want your whole heart. Ask again. Because I really, really want to give you this wisdom and I want your heart to be at a good place to actually steward it well. Oh, he's a wise father. God knows exactly what he is doing. And uh, just, just a brief aside here. I mentioned God has mercy on those who doubt. Brothers and sisters, let's have mercy on those who doubt. Let's have mercy on those who doubt. But like God, should we just be okay with our brothers and sisters living in doubt? No, we want to help them confront it, right? In the same way that God confronts us even in this text because he wants our hearts so this is, this asking God for wisdom is a purifying process when you look at it in light of the condition given in the text. So God commands us to ask for wisdom. He motivates us on the basis of his own generosity of character. He motivates us by telling us what his attitude toward us is like, that he doesn't shame us, but he welcomes us, um, that he gives us a promise to embolden us to come to him. And he wants us to ask you know, in light of this condition to ask from a heart that actually believes that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And when we fall short, it's God's way of saying, okay, let's deal with that. Now let's ask again because I want your heart, all of it. God is determined that the testing of your faith has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we can leave here today with so much hope in our hearts because God, who is so single-minded himself, is working even our trials in our lives to have their full effect so that we'd be perfect and complete. That we're going to have a day, that the day is coming when we will be perfectly single-minded and absolutely stable. We will be a people of wisdom inside and out without any chinks in the armor. We will know the generosity of our Father without doubting it for another second. That's one of the things I really look forward to in heaven. I really look forward to experiencing life in a resurrection body where my heart will not doubt him again. Because those doubts get me in more trouble than anything else in this life. Not my circumstances, it's my doubts of God that get me into more trouble than anything else. And I'm longing and I get to look forward with you, brothers and sisters, to the day where we're not going to doubt anymore. That death that, that Jesus died on our behalf will dissolve doubts 
ultimately. That power will be shown and uh, those doubts will be dissolved forever. And until then, there are two things that are certain in life, two things that we can walk away with today that have absolute certainty about, even in a fallen world. The two things are this, God's character and the promises attached to his character. So I want to pray that we would lay hold of these things. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, that is our cry, that you would help us to hold on to the certainties of life. Lord, there's so many things that, that seem to destabilize our hearts. But Lord, we thank you that your character is tried and proved and that your promises are tried and proved and we can cling to your character and the promises attached to your character. And I pray that for your people today. And I pray for those who are pulled hard into the world, those who are pulled hard and that their own unbelief and doubts are getting the better of them. Lord, I pray that you would grant a fresh, humble admission that you have done nothing, Lord. You have done nothing to warrant any skepticism, any unbelief, any doubt. The only thing that's constant in this world is your character, Lord. And Lord, we acknowledge our foolishness and not trusting the one constant. That we would rather run to other things that are so inherently unstable than run to you constantly. And I just pray, Lord, for a childlike faith to look at you for who you are. You are generous, Lord. And that we can come to you banking on your generosity and your welcoming heart toward us and we can ask you for wisdom in our circumstances. And that's my prayer, Lord, is that you would freshly stir your people, freshly motivate your people to ask you in faith. And if they see this condition, their heart is snagged on this condition to ask in faith with no doubting, I pray, Lord, that there would just be a humble coming to you, that there would be confession, that there would be forgiveness and renewal. And Lord, I pray that you give your, your children a heart to ask again. Help them to ask the right way from a heart that really believes that their father has good character, good intent, and always always follows through on his promises. So Lord, do your work. And for those, Lord, who have never put their faith in you, Lord, I really pray, really pray today that you would have mercy on those who live in doubt. God, that you would overcome their unbelief and that you would put the fear of the Lord in their hearts. Even now, pour your spirit into their hearts so that they can have a heart inclined toward wisdom. So they have a fighting shot in this battle. And Lord, we thank you for the hope to come when all of our doubts will finally and fully be dissolved. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.